Welcome to 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. And I'm Mike Tresca. We're a married couple who decide to celebrate our 50th birthdays by watching some old movies. A lot of old movies. Join us as we watch 50 movies on our date nights and have fun dissecting them. As a bonus, each episode is accompanied by an original character I created and designed for use in your tabletop role-playing games. Many of the movies we watch are unrated, but this podcast is not. 50 Date Night Screams contains mature themes and is intended for adult audiences, so take care when listening. Plus, there are spoilers. Check the show notes to see where you can watch this movie before you listen. We're glad you're here. Have a seat, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and get ready to scream along with us. What do you make of that? I should say that was a human ear bone. Exactly. Where'd you get it? I found it last night in the fireplace over there. You mean to say... Rather unusual, isn't it? Finding the ear bone of a human being in the fireplace of a fashionable hotel. Ah. What? What? Steve. Steve. Hello, and welcome to another episode of 50 Date Night Screams. Hey, Mike, what's going on? Hello. I'm very excited about this. We're not recording at midnight, but midnight warning. Yes, I'm very excited. Yeah, we're not quite at midnight as we're recording this, but who knows? We might get there (laughs) in the process. All right. This is episode 26, The Midnight Warning from 1932. Oh, it's early. I didn't really think too much about the title. Um, What does it have to do with the movie? (laughs) Like almost nothing. <laughs> oh, it's pretty literal, I think. I think it's 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 not a great uh, title, but it's it's accurate. It's There's a warning at midnight. There is. Okay. I don't think I remember a warning. I do know that a lot of the action, the, almost the whole movie takes place over the course of one night and into early the next morning. Mm-hmm. Apparently people in 1932 don't sleep. Mm-mm. So there's that. But other than that, I'm not really sure what... The title. Well, I can't say what the warning is. I've given it away, so we'll get to that point. All right, let's lay down some content warnings for this episode. I'm certainly not an expert in this, but I will do my best. One content warning will be kidnapping and abduction. Another is mental illness. There is also murder. I think that's a content warning that we use in almost <laughs> every movie. In this series of podcast episodes, um, I would also say torture, maybe it's a little bit of torture, but I'm just going to put it, I'm just going to err on the side of caution and say torture. And there is some trivialization of mental illness and trauma, I would say, is in there as well. And then, Mike, I think maybe you have one. Misogyny. I mean, tremendous. Misogyny. And there was another one that I think you thought of, which was... It was around corpses. I don't know if that's a separate... Uh, I'm not sure what that would exactly be co- be called because we're not experts. But yes, there there are some, some corpses used as kind of props in this movie, unfortunately. And then there is some shooting. There is some gunplay yeah. in this movie as well. Okay. Hopefully... That's a pretty wide swath. That's the whole film. Content content warnings, but we do want to make sure that people know what they're getting into before they start listening. So if any of those things are going to be something that you don't care to hear about, we will catch you on the next episode. All right. Okay, well, let's start with the very quick summary that is from... IMDb. Are you ready for this, Mike? I'm bracing myself. All right, brace yourself. Here we go. Guests at a luxury hotel are horrified when they witness a man literally disappear into thin air. The vanished man's relatives hire a detective who goes to the hotel to investigate the disappearance. That is 100% wrong. You know what that feels like? That feels like somebody used AI to write it. It's very weird. It is on IMDb. Just close enough with all the details wrong. There's a hotel. There are guests at the hotel. Someone 
does go missing. Mm -hmm. There is a detective, although nobody hires him. Uh, He does go to the hotel, but it's pretty much pro bono, I think, his work on this. But, all right. Well, let's go over some of the other specifics that we know are accurate. It is The Midnight Warning from 1932. It is black and white. The director is Spencer Gordon Bennett, and it has a 5.0 out of 10 on IMDb. Pretty good. Yeah. It is one hour and three minutes long. You know what? I often use the IMDb stats for the length of the movie, and I probably shouldn't because I'm not sure how accurate. An inordinate amount of them seem to be one hour and three minutes long. I'm questioning all reality after that summary, so yeah, who knows? And that was from IMDb, right? So that was, That's from yeah. IMDb, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I pull summaries from all different places. Sometimes IMDb has one, and sometimes they don't. This time they did, and it was hilarious enough that I wanted to <laughs> use it. So, all right, well, let's get in to the actual real events of the movie, for which I have an actual summary from actually watching it. The movie opens, and we have a character whose name is Dr. Walcott. He's in his hotel room. His detective friend, Detective Cornish, shows up, comes to see him. And the two of them start to mess around with some binoculars. Right. And- now, I, I, I don't want to interrupt, but I, I do think this is Well, important. you are interrupting. I do want to interrupt. The, this is, a, I think they're there for like a detective convention or something. They're there for some kind of like crime solving police thing, I thought. I thought there was some reason they were all together. You're saying that. No. They're there for something. Yeah. Why does that matter right now? Uh, because it's weird that you have these two specialists in a hotel. And the reason they were staying there is pretty much because they felt they, they were there for some other crime related investigative uh, something that happens to perfectly fit their skills. So why are these two randos no, together? It, it was some kind of political thing, and I don't know. Oh, it was know. political. I, I don't okay. really know. That's not really um, important to the plot. But the binoculars are. Yeah. So they're looking at these binoculars. The best lenses money can buy. Yeah. They're looking out the window. To us, it's pretty, mon- like, not mundane, but, like, binoculars and good ones, like, people have them. To them, it was like, holy crap, you can see really far with these. So they're looking out the window and having that experience. And then Dr. Walcott shows the detective, his name is Cornish, something he found in the fireplace in his hotel room there. And Cornish immediately goes, oh, that's a human ear bone. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Dr. Walcott groans and passes out. <laughs> It's quite an interesting um, opening to this. I this feel movie. like that's not out of the realm of possibility if someone shows you a human ear bone when you don't expect it. You might groan and pass out. I could see it. I don't think I would. All right. So in any case, like what was interesting to me too is first off, Cornish like immediately is like, oh, that's an ear bone. He knew immediately what it was, which like who would know that? He goes on to talk about an ear bone being the bone in the body that's the most difficult to cremate. And that it actually stays behind. I did a little bit of research and I could not find any evidence on any of these very interesting but grisly descriptions of cremation that the ear bone would be left behind. And I don't know that anyone would even know that because I don't know that people are identifying the bone fragments after a cremation. So in any case... What I did find is that there is a condition where the middle ear bone continues to grow. I think it's, I think you say it, it's a condition called osteosclerosis and it causes hearing loss. So it's, there is the potential to, to have that part of the ear be overgrown and, and be a, uh, a type of bone that maybe wouldn't burn as easily as, I don't know. Anyway, that's all I found. So it was just a very specific thing in this movie that I don't find any evidence to support it. In 1932, of course, they didn't have the Google machine, so they would not have known. All right, so Cornish calls the hotel staff and because Dr. Walcott has passed out. So a doctor shows up, another doctor, like the hotel doctor, and the front desk clerk show up. They're acting really weird, okay? So the game is afoot. The hotel doctor is like, oh, you just got too hot. Like, it's summer. You got too hot. (laughs) 
you passed out, and they're like, all right, whatever. So when they leave, Cornish is like, no, you didn't pass out, bro. You were grazed by a bullet. Okay. And now, again, we're like, holy shit, what's going on, right? Yeah. The shot came from across the street, they figure out. So, of course, the detective going to detect. So he takes Dr. Wilcott, and <laughs> they go and they break into the house across the street from this hotel, from this hotel room. And they find some evidence. They uh, find Before that, don't they end up setting a, a dummy for, to check? He's like, that's not true. There's no way. Yes. And they put like a hat on it and, yes. and it happens again. Right. It happens again. <laughs> yes. They're like, eh, someone's trying to murder you, but let's go see it's what's the going on. It's the like sh- the coat rack. It's like one of those yeah. coat racks. They put a hat yeah. on it and they make yeah. it look like Dr. Walcott and yeah. set it up in front of the window. And then all of a sudden it just falls over. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, I guess that's for sure. Someone's trying to right. murder me. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, you do want to replicate. Like, that's how that's science. That's the scientific, the scientific method. scientific method in action, right? everybody. Yeah. 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 So anyway, right. They break in across the street. They find this blonde woman. She leaves in a taxi. But Cornish has his binoculars with him. Turns out he can read lips. So he's watching her as she gets into the taxi and reads her lips and sees the address of where she's going. All right. So it's funny, too, because Dr. Walcott points out, well, what if she had given the address after she got into the taxi? You wouldn't have been able to read her lips. Like, he he was, like, pointing out the flaws in all of this. Like, this is an amazing coincidence that this is working out. And he's like, yes. Yep. Yes, it is. (laughs) And we're lucky. So now we know where she went. So now they go back to the hotel, and the hotel staff is still acting all weird. They know something, but they also seem confused. Okay. So we're not really sure what's going on yet. So Cornish does more investigating, and he finds out that the hotel doctor and the owner of a local mortuary are both stakeholders in this hotel that they're staying at. So... He comes to the conclusion, okay, they might have an interest in covering up a crime were one to happen at this hotel. All right, now they they know the address of where the blonde woman went. They go there. They find her there. They find her fiancé there. They kind of like bust in. (laughs) Bust in on her. They really do. Yeah. Her name is um, Enid, and she leaves. She's going to catch a train. So the fiancé sits there and talks with them. His name is Eric. And he just, like, he tells them everything, all right? Tells them everything that that he knows about the situation. Okay, here's what happened. Enid is looking for her brother. Her brother's name is Ralph. He had been a guest at the hotel. Now he's missing. Okay, this is your vanishing man. You remember from the summary that I gave at the beginning. This is the vanishing man, <laughs> but he didn't vanish in front of anybody, okay? He's right. just He's missing. Everybody at the hotel says that neither Enid or Ralph was ever there. She's insisting that they were there. They're saying, no, you weren't, honey. They go so far as to have her committed to a psych ward in the hospital because she's insisting that her brother was in the hotel. She had left him there and that he's now missing. Eric tries to get to the bottom of the whole situation. He can't get any traction because everybody has clammed up about what's happening. (laughs) So he decides, this guy's genius, okay? He decides (laughs) he's going to rent the house, the apartment, whatever it is, across the street and shoot at hotel guests (laughs) from that location. This is his big plan. As one does. As one does. (laughs) Logically. Logically. All right. So (laughs) now Eric is talking more about Enid's mental state. He says she had a brain fever. It took a month before she felt better. And he blames it all on some potentially genetic mental problems. And he's been worried about this because they are engaged. So as usual, we've got a hysterical woman. She's actually, a real thing happened to her, but even her fiancé is like, oh, yeah, but she is kind of emotional here. So, yeah. Yeah, we didn't do any warnings, um, but this is one of them. This this movie, uh, one, implies that well, women are fragile and potentially susceptible to mental illness, and just, you know, just a little push over the edge is going to make it happen. Uh, and two, it's almost like a baseline 
assumption for every single character. I, I don't know that Walcott and and uh, was it Cornish sort of buy into it, but almost everybody else does. Like it's just a fact. Like women aren't going to be able to handle this stuff, and you know if you push them hard enough, they'll just lose their minds, and and that's it. So there's really definitely this sort of gross 1930s uh, assumptions about how fragile women can be in difficult circumstances. I mean, it's kind of their whole plan, frankly. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's definitely definitely part of it. This is this is going on and while they're all talking, turns out that Enid is taken hostage by the hotel doctor, the mortuary owner, and the hotel staff. They take her to the mortuary, they lock her in the basement. And now they're like haunting her making her think her brother's ghost is there. Okay? There's like coffins, there there may or may not be some bodies down there. Like she's already been through a lot and they just are literally like trying to push her over the edge again. Yep, and there's like complicated pipes so the I don't I I'm assuming it's the mortuary owners like going through the <laughs> through the pipes too. So there I mean this is elaborate. This isn't just Oh, let's lock her in a scary place at night. They they really try to mess her up significantly. And it would mess anybody up, by the way, for the record. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's screaming. She's terrified. She doesn't know what's going on. So Cornish, Walcott, and Eric, all right, got it, are, <laughs> and the police figure out, they're like, oh, no, Enid has been kidnapped. They figure out she's at the mortuary, and they go over there. They hear Enid screaming downstairs, and they get her out of there. And it, it is really pretty disgusting. Like, I don't know. I don't know, especially at a time when we didn't have so much knowledge. And, who you know, who's to say what her belief system was or anybody's. And the fact that they would just try to drive her ins- insane, I guess you would say. Like, again, by making it seem like her brother was there, she doesn't even know what happened to him at this point in the movie. And they're just making it seem like he's down there and there is a bunch of coffins. I think it, I think a lot of people would be bothered by that, just in general. But then he's doing the, the you know, Scooby-Doo, yeah. you know, trying to scare her thing. Yeah. It's disgusting. But it's evident that for some reason, someone who has a grudge against the hotel is shooting at the guests through the windows. And also, for some reason, the hotel people don't dare go to the police about it. Do you think the underworld has anything to do with it? No, they're dealing with amateurs, and they know it. That's why they're fighting with the only means at hand. Come on, we'll look up the young woman. She's the keynote to the whole situation. All right, so now they they do hear what happened. Finally... Everybody explains to the cops and to Enid and Eric that it turns out that Ralph, yes, Ralph was at the hotel with Enid. He had the bubonic plague of all things. And he died at the hotel while Enid was away taking care of some family business. The staff covered it up because they were worried that it would get found out. People would not stay at the hotel and that they might even try to leave the city. So they needed the income because this was during the Depression and the hotel had taken a hit. And it turned out that even like the public health department was in on it. They were like, oh no, we can't let it get out that the plague was here. People will just freak out and they'll, there'll be panic. It also occurs to me that this is not long after the flu pandemic of 1918. So they might have been correct about people would have thought that it might be the same thing starting all over again. And we don't know what would. That doesn't mean you don't tell people. That means that you handle it properly. But anyway, that's what everybody was in on it together. Everybody. So Ralph died. The mortuary owner burned his body in the hotel fireplace. (laughs) They covered it up. And then they all decided to make Enid think that she was losing her mind, that they had never been there. Now, the mortuary owner, the, do- the hotel doctor, and the hotel staff, 
start insisting that they did not do anything that was against the law. <laughs> okay. And then they blame Eric and they were like, well, you actually shot at people. That is actually against the law. And you think about it and you're like, okay, all right, let, let's, let's think about this for a minute. Let's try to go over the things that they did that, that would be actually against the law. They covered up a death. They burned a body in a hotel fireplace, which I assume is not, maybe there's no law. <laughs> but there probably, I mean, there probably is today. Maybe there wasn't then. But in order to burn a body in a fireplace, you're going to have to do some things to it, right? Like, don't you at think? At the minimum. At the minimum. Right. And, and the smell. And the smell. And, and the gore. Right. Burning is not a magical solution. And the heat level it would have to reach probably would crack most fireplaces, right? You can't just put, you can't just do that in a normal fireplace. I don't think that you would be able to make a fire that is that hot right. in a regular fireplace. Plus, I didn't really get a good sense of how big this fireplace was from the movie. I know how big, like, our fireplace is, like a regular household fireplace. You'd have to be burning things one limb at a time. Yeah. So they would have had to dismember him. Is that against the law? Dismembering a corpse? I feel like yes, it is. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, look, at the minimum, these are experts and, and, you know, the mortuary guy alone is conducting things against his license. I mean, he should lose his license, right? Yeah. Let's say you, yeah, so maybe you're allowed to dismember a corpse. Are you allowed to dismember somebody else's corpse without their family's permission? Pretty sure not. Can you do it as a health risk within the context of a, a public place or a hotel and people stay there? Can you do that? Probably not. I'm pretty sure there's a... Now, the other thing is, you and you mentioned this, the time frame it takes place, there is an argument that some of these may not have been codified in law in the way we consider it today. So maybe, but it does stretch the willing suspension of disbelief just a little bit, just a little bit. Well, and there are some things that you think about it and you're like, yeah, that should probably be against the law, but maybe there's no specific law. Right. Because right. why would you have to write that into law? Well, usually you have to write it into law because somebody goes and does some stupid fucking shit, right? You know, right. had anybody <laughs> dismembered a corpse and burned it in a hotel fireplace previous to this? Maybe not. So maybe they didn't have a specific law. They took Enid hostage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, forget the dead. How about the living? Yeah. And what they did. Yeah. 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 Now... Would it be against the law to to try to trick her like that? Maybe not. But they did kidnap her, and then they did hold her against her will. So definitely they broke some laws there. Yet they're going to try to blame everything on Eric and say that it's his fault. And they want to lock Eric up for attempted murder. Attempted murder. Mm -hmm. That's what they're trying to pin on him, even after all of the other things that they did. And then all, and then collusion, right? Isn't that a thing? Conspiring, yeah. Yeah. something like that. Like that's usually something that that they that they put in when they're when they're prosecuting people for these things that they all got together and decided to do a bad thing together. Um, right. Several bad things. Yeah. Conspiracy. Conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or conspiracy to commit. And, may, and yeah. maybe it's even fraud. Maybe that's even fraud. To... Uh, they broke like a dozen laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shut that place down. Clarendon Arms. You're out of business. Shut it down. So they're all kind of standing around going. But you did this, but you did that, but you did the other. So here's how the movie ends. If you're not sitting down, you gotta sit down. Because this is like ridiculous, mouth hanging open ending to this movie. Feels like a writer just didn't know what to do. Everybody decides they're gonna drop the incident. They're just gonna forget about it. They're gonna forget about it. And it turns out Detective Cornish has a farm. Has a farm somewhere. I feel like it's in Connecticut, just because the might other farm. Might be in Connecticut. <laughs> they might be heading up to the farm with Eddie the Executioner. <laughs> Thank you. From a previous episode to and raise chickens. chickens for the eggs, not to be meat chickens. No, we don't execute chickens. We don't execute chickens. <laughs> we just take the eggs, and they're all gonna forget. Let's go to this farm and we're going to forget. Was that Wayne's World where they do like the thing with the hands? You can't see me because this is a podcast. Yeah, they go. Doo -doo 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 -doo. Like, like that's going to happen. Yeah. And Enid's going to forget that her beloved brother died of the plague. By himself. By himself. Alone. alone. I mean, awful. Just awful. 
and then they dismembered his body and burned it, except for that ear bone. And well, that was that was an it wasn't on purpose. That was an accident. But yeah, that, yeah, that was an accident. <laughs> Although, you know, here's another thing: you're going to be doing these crimes, right? Once you clean out the fireplace. Well, and I'm guessing they were trying to minimize who was involved, right? So they probably didn't have cleaning staff. There were probably different things, but that doesn't excuse it. You would still think. I mean, I, they cleaned. There wasn't like femurs in the. He, in the, but so they, he owns a mortuary. It. He knows that there's bone fragments left over. No, they he sucks dismembered at his job. him. He is very bad at his sweeping job. Sweeping the pieces out of the fireplace. <laughs> He's bad. Should at his not job. have been lifted. They actually redecorated and moved the furniture around in the room to confuse Enid, so that when she insisted that she had stayed in that suite. They brought her in there, and she went, oh, my gosh, it's different, but I know I was here. And they were like, no, you are telling us that the wallpaper was blue and it's beige or whatever it was, you know, so that she didn't have a – like, they went that far. They went that far and yet didn't get a broom and dustpan and clean out the fireplace. So dumb. So there's – this is a lot. There's a lot in here. Um this film has so much going on, but one of the ending issues is it is pre Hayes Code. We've talked about Hayes Code before. We keep yep. saying we have to do an episode. Yeah, that's about a it. that's a big thing. So yep. part of the Hayes Code was that you had to wrap things up in a way that the authorities sort of law is upheld, um, and this is pre Hayes Code, so they don't have to do that. Nah, 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 nah. So they basically did what they did. Uh, it is shocking, but. And you mentioned it, too, which I think is sort of an interesting snapshot in time. I think there's a lot of people who would argue mass panic is something to be absolutely avoided in times of post-recent plagues, as well as the Great Depression. Um, and I think there may have been audiences who agreed with it. Well, yeah, you can get into a the, the ends justify the means situation mm-hmm. in that for the greater good that they needed to tamp it down, make sure nobody else got sick etc etc so i could buy that they still didn't need to lie to enid they still didn't need to try to make her think that she was losing her mind and and have her committed you know i think it's interesting to you about this and it's it's again it's a modern perspective right so we're taking we're looking at this a long time later but uh, one of the things too is uh enid's not allowed to be angry she can be sad she can be upset but she never gets really angry. And it's so interesting because Eric can be angry, but Enid can't be. So there's sort of she's in this spot where she doesn't really have a lot of ways she can express her grief other than hysteria is the way they basically are trying to push her. And then it's sort of like if we push her enough, she'll be hysterical enough that we can argue it's a mental illness. Uh, and Eric supports that, as you mentioned. There's like a the tendency in the family kind of thing. She's the biggest victim of all this. I know the movie didn't think that when they made it. But we, you know, from our perspective, it's so fascinating because you're a little bit like, we're just horrified for Enid more than anybody else. Walcott and and Cornish are sort of, you know, they're not really the main characters in theory. They, they solve the mystery, but this is really supposed to be Enid's story. Uh, and what's interesting is the film never shows you the most exciting part of this is her disbelief and we only get told that in, in we don't even see it in a flashback we just get told it we actually don't see her going through the trauma of going this is different we, we know it happens because eric and Enid at different points summarize it but we actually don't get to see it so it's interesting because we in a lot of ways it keeps enid at a distance even though this is all about essentially trying to get enid to look crazy so that they can commit her totally and have her out of the way because it's also presumed that, she, I mean, she's rather powerless. So I don't really know what they thought that she would do. Because even if she did, even if they did tell her exactly what happened, what was she going to do? Go to the police? And what were they going to do? They didn't do anything in the end. So I really don't know what they were all worried about. You know who wouldn't put up with this? Who? Sue Walker. Oh, God. <laughs> But it is, it's such a difference from Sue, 
to poor Enid, right? Where you have because what would Sue do, and 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 what is every plucky report? They have the power of the press, and there wasn't that real threat that didn't seem like a thing, other than it potentially getting out and them being upset because it would cause a panic. There was this sort of assumption that no one would believe her anyway because there was no evidence in any way, shape, or form to back up what she was doing, and which I don't think they were wrong. Eric's actions. Re- brilliant plan to shoot at people to get them to stop going to the hotel uh doesn't make him look great either yeah he was supposedly uh an expert marksman i'm presuming that that was a world war one situation Mm -hmm. it's again i think an artifact of the time that for us it would be like okay you you could obtain that skill if someone decided today that they wanted to become an expert marksman you could pursue that skill I don't know that you could have done that then. It would have been something that you would learn in the military. Well, the other thing is they have money, right? So she paid for Ralph to be there for a while. Ralph was there for a while. So she paid a significant amount of money to have him there. Uh, They were traveling overseas. That's how he got bubonic plague. So they had money coming in. So I think there was a little bit of concern there's, as I always enjoy these class tensions, right, where it seemed like the middle class folks who are trying to keep their business afloat are a little uh, wary and concerned about these upper class folks who potentially, I think, they feel like she has enough money she could potentially cause trouble. She never demonstrates that. And we never get that far. But there's definitely this sort of undercurrent that you have to sort of discredit her because you can't beat her with economics like you know briber for example right that doesn't seem to ever even be a consideration i think the reason is because there's an assumption she has money right although that never really enters into the situation it's not like they tried to extort her or anything like that no it's it's such a weird thing because there are these other options they could have they never try right yeah yeah they could have strung her along and said if you pay this or that, we'll tell you what happened. Like, n- like nobody ever does that. They're just, I don't know, I guess, I-, I suppose that you shouldn't expect these people who probably hadn't done much crime <laughs> in their life previously to suddenly be expert at it. But they were extraordinarily bad at what they were doing. Yeah, and, like bad. I said, was, they were just like scooby-dooing the whole way. And I have to say, I, I love the Walcott-Cornish team. They're very uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson. I think that was really intentional. Cornish sort of having this superpower of the combination of super cool binoculars and his ability to read lips makes him like a telepath. Because he sets up a whole scene at one point. He asks for a room across from the other room so he can watch the suspects talking to each other. And he's full on reading their lips. And really, you know, it, he he's brilliant in the, the context of what he does. It's just that the character's motivations are so odd. You know, it's almost like what a perfect foil to this bumbling bunch of idiots that he he come, stumbles across, all because of the ear bone. I mean, a regular person would have been like, "There's some bone. I don't even know if I would know it was an ear bone." And I, they, you know, maybe you guys should clean up better. You know, I don't know. I wouldn't be like, "That's an ear bone." So, well, the odds of that specifically being found, right place, right time, and, and also the response, right? So, they, they, like I said, they test it after he gets shot and creased. Once they test it again, and their response is, "We should go across the street and see who that is." Uh, not to immediately call in the authorities, not to freak out and run screaming. Although that is uh, <laughs> one of the reactions initially. Um, so it was really I. I like their dynamic. I thought they were good actors, actually. Um, I thought they did a really good job of sort of sort of trying to get to the bottom of this. But you got an hour and three minutes, and uh, you got to move things along. So. I guess we're not going to have any kind of trial. We're just going to cover things up and pretend it didn't happen. And even in an hour and three minutes, there were a lot of points where you were just watching people walk around. You know, you're watching Ian at some point walk around and like pick up her keys in her bag and whatever. Like, you know, (laughs) they were kind of just like dragging that stuff out. But yeah, it was absolutely well acted. Watching Enid be terrified out of her wits in this basement of this mortuary. Like that was scary because I was just thinking anybody put in that position, you know, would be screaming and saying, let me out and what's going on and why are you doing this? And all of that, not knowing what was going on. You know, I I felt like even me, I don't believe in ghosts, but you know, you're going (laughs) to lock me in a basement 
with some corpses and some coffins and some dude going, ooh. You know, I mean, yeah, I'd probably All start I can to lose think it. is the smell. The smell. I, don't, I can't, I don't. It can't smell great because it's embalming. I'm assuming so. It's like embalming fluid. Yeah, down it was. There, it, it was weird because also I don't know that that's what you would do. Even then, yeah. I don't know that you just yeah. like maybe just throw them in a freezer. Left and them <laughs> in the basement like hope that. For the best. Also, also they did mention it was summer and it was hot. People yeah. weren't dressed like it was summer. Yeah, but they kept saying because they were like they said that Walcott had passed out. Oh, he passed out because it was hot. Yeah. You know, maybe Which you, the other thing too water. is that's a doctor telling a doctor. I know, I know, right? That was the best. You're like, and Cornish is like, no, you're healthy, bro. You're not just gonna pass out for no reason. That's dumb. And he's like, well, if he passed out because he was hot, why does he have this like lesion that looks an awful lot like a bullet graze on his it's forehead? Like, oh, he, he hurt the doctor's like, oh, he must down. have hit something yeah. on the way yeah. down. Yeah, yeah that's, that's amazing. That's what it is. That's what it is. You know. Are you sure, Miss Van Buren, that? Uh, you have the right hotel? The right hotel? Good heavens, don't you suppose I know what hotel I stopped at? I told you my brother was ill and we had the house physician in. Dr. Brunson. Well, that's the name of our house physician, all right. Do you mean to say you don't remember the incident? On me? I'm sorry, but I don't recall ever having seen you before in my life. So can we talk about this plot? We've been talking about the plot. What do you no, mean? No, but where it comes from. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not do any research into that, so hopefully okay. you did. I did. So okay. this is an urban legend. It's called, it depends on where you've heard it. It's called either The Vanishing Hotel Room or The Vanishing Lady. It goes back all the way to 1897. So it's been around. It's funny because there's a reviewer who says this supposedly really happened at Chicago. or No, it didn't. Because it's a lot of work to make somebody vanish. And it, as we've now pointed out for about 10 minutes... Uh, there's many other ways to do a thing than try and convince someone that someone wasn't there by moving all the things around. Is it? Do, do they mean at the World's Fair in Chicago? Yes. At that time yes, in history? They're talking, they're talking about The Devil in the White City. The de- okay, right, right, yeah. right. Which is um, an amazing book, Devil in the White City, if you are interested in true crime, which you probably are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Welcome to our podcast, if those of you who are new to it. <laughs> <laughs> But, Eric Larson uh, is the author. So yes, Eric Larson is amazing. But it's been done. So there's been there's a movie called uh, A Day a So Long at the Fair, which is sort of the same similar plot. But it, it's it's repeated over and over, and it really does pivot on a person essentially going to a hotel, leaving, and then coming back, and then disappearing with no evidence uh, whatsoever. So it's been done many times. It's been done in series. It's been done in. It was certainly done in movies before and after this film. So it's pretty popular concept. And, you know, no one always has the answer for what the reason is. It varies for why they do it and what actually happened. But it is very much tied to the idea that someone can, tries to convince you that this person just disappeared. And usually it's at a hotel. I think there's probably in this, in the same way Devil in the White City being a great example, that was a very unique scenario of young women who are traveling for the first time on their own to a large city they may have been in more rural areas. They're now in an industrialized urban area, so they don't necessarily know the dangers they're getting into. And there's a lot of ways for them to disappear that they wouldn't have to worry about before. So you could get lost in the city. And that's a that was a concern for a long time um, in a lot of industrialized countries where you were suddenly sort of going into these scenarios where, look, it is kind of weird to say that you're going to stay at somebody else's place. They're going to, you know, make your bed and wash your towels and... You should trust them. So, you know, some of these stories were very much about, and, you know, the 1890s, this was certainly a thing as people are traveling more and people are staying in hotels that, you know, there's a sort of fundamental distrust in your fellow person who's supposed to be taking care of you, but you don't know them. You know, the only contract is money. Um, So as you and I both know, we regularly have issues with hotels. So, uh, yeah, you shouldn't trust them. So it's really sort of an interesting, this is very much an urban legend sort of, uh, I, I, the, the, the turns it takes are quite strange The the, the, the sniper guy as the solution, uh, is interesting and certainly a twist that's not normally in it. By the way, that's the midnight warning. So it was midnight when he shot at him. That was the midnight warning. Yeah. Which is also like, so odd to me. What are these people's personal habits <laughs> that they're all up at, at midnight? I, didn't I don't understand. understand it. I do. Well, having been at the UK recently where there's not always air conditioning, you have to keep the windows open. I did get the impression that it was really hard to sleep because it was hot. 
That was one of the points they were yeah, made. Yeah, but it wasn't like they were, like, trying. They were just all... Everybody's fully closed. He wasn't, and, like, in his pajamas. And by the way, Walcott was, like, up all night. Cornish was out running around. They show, they do that thing where they show the clock. Right. They do that thing where they show the clock and it goes between whatever it was, let's say midnight and like yeah. five in the morning. Yeah. Cornish comes back to the hotel and Walcott is like sitting in a chair reading the paper. <laughs> it's like, I, look. I kind of want a series with these two guys. I think they'd be hilarious. They did, you know, I, do, the, I want them solving crimes. The, I do. the acting was good. And it was very funny because Cornish is like, this is this and that is that. But it was kind of a fun little dynamic. It would have been interesting to see that teased out a little bit more as they figured out this mystery, which they didn't really. It just got explained to them. It wasn't like yeah. there was no point at the end where Cornish was just going around and, you know, doing like in a lot of the detective movies and you did this and you did this and he knows everything. No, yeah. it, it didn't is, have to be explained. This was not a fair play whodunit. No, it wasn't. no. And, you know, the other thing I wrote a note to myself about characters that play a large role in the plot, but who don't appear really in the film for yeah. very long or at all. Like, that's another thing that I don't think we see very often in modern movies. In modern movies, you have a whodunit, let's say. You know it's probably somebody that you're seeing on screen, right? It's not going to be a person that just suddenly gets named at the end or shows up five minutes before the end. It's just not. So you know that the killer has to be one of the people that has the speaking part. Right. You know? In these older movies, it's just like uh, it comes out of the out of the woodwork. They're like, "Oh yeah, it was the butler," and you're like, "You saw the butler in the back of the room." They didn't even have a speaking role. Yeah, and and look, we never see. We, I don't even know what Ralph looks like. I think you did thing. see him at one point. Was he because, in there? I don't even remember because he wasn't well. And so, in like when they show like what had happened, they came into the hotel. He wasn't well. He sits down on the couch really briefly, really yeah. briefly. Yeah. And then all of these other characters who are I mean it's really Cornish and Walcott's movie right. and even Eric though it's and not Enid. about them. It's not about them at all actually. Right, but, but yeah. all of the people that were in the conspiracy, they really aren't on screen a lot. And so no. you really don't get a good sense of who they are, what's going on, like like none and, of And them. they were a weird group of them too, right? It's not there's not a clear. I mean, I think the mortuary. Well, that's guy, because they own the hotel. They all right. had owned shares in the hotel, which I was also like, is that common? I don't know because for for three or four different entities to sort of maybe co-own Great Depression a building? after the Great Depression, maybe I don't know. Maybe? I mean, it, but it it was it was a little bit like we're all villains. <laughs> Capitalism is the villain because we want to keep ourselves in business. That's the villain. So it was really interesting how. Uh, there wasn't one clear bad guy, which I'm going to fix that when we get to my part, but that's okay. I, I love that. That's the hilarious tagline. There really wasn't one for this movie, but there you go. You just wrote it. Capitalism is the real villain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Mike. I think we have to give this movie some ratings, although I really don't know what I'm going to do about this. So we're going to give it our own homegrown rating system which I made up, which is <laughs> Knives, Wine, and Screams. So between zero and five knives, and knives represents how gory it was, did it live up to its title, basically how it did as a horror movie, which I think we can agree this is not really a horror movie, even though it tries to get there. So I'm going to start with you, Mike. How many knives are you going to give this movie? <laughs> I'm very I'm biased towards this film. I like this film, like and it? I'm probably going to give it better scores than I should. Look, the 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 murder stuff is kind of lame, uh, but horrifying in the sense that you know if you had a loved one and you left them somewhere and they disappeared, that's horrifying. Oh, that's really um, co- like not absolutely. knowing how they died, no. and you find out they died from a plague. She which didn't is, know she, she didn't know he was dead even. Right, that's awful. Going to the mortuary and somebody try and drive you literally over the edge with dead bodies and the ghost of your potential, you know, the idea that it's the ghost of your brother is pretty bad. So I'm actually willing to give it um, a lot more slack than I think I would. So I'll give it two knives. Oh, only two? Yeah, I mean, I thought maybe two and a half, but um, I don't think it's, it's not gory. Right. It's more threatening. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. It's two. It's not a horror movie. 
It is a whodunit. It is not a fair play whodunit. Um, the body count was one. <laughs> Just <laughs> except for whoever poor people are in the mortuary. <laughs> yeah. The scene with Enid being locked down there and being terrorized, I found that scary. I don't know if that's also because I was identifying with her as a as a woman yeah. and how she may have felt powerless and at points in my life when I have felt powerless as as a woman with a lot of men around you and, and you don't know what's going on, nobody knows where you are, et cetera, et cetera. That part was scary. Um, there was no gore. It didn't really live up to its title. So uh, yeah, two. I think I think two. I think two knives. All right. So glasses of wine again between zero and five glasses of wine. And the glasses of wine represent. Was it fun to watch? Did it have any unique moments? Did we enjoy watching it? So what do you think? And how many glasses of wine are you going to give the midnight warning? This was very entertaining. I mean, it didn't make any lick of sense, but that's okay. I um, I also thought it was an interesting artifact for its time, right? Now, again, this is sort of now, if you look at the movie sort of abstractly as an education, um, the ending is very educational because we can't imagine that today. And it's fascinating to see because it is pre-Hayes Code. Uh, the post-depression trauma, I think, is very real and it's something to consider that, to me, makes the movie interesting. So I find that entertaining in that sense. Not, you know, it's not necessarily always enjoyable, but certainly uh, intellectually stimulating. But I, I liked it, too. I liked Walcott. I, I liked Cornish. Uh, I thought they were great. They were actually my favorite part. I, Enid's, I think, had a tough time. The actress just had to do a lot of sort of, you know, being upset. Uh, Eric was, I could take and leave him. I don't think he was nearly as up to par. And, and pretty much everybody else was sort of in the background being furtive. So it was really the Walcott Corner show. And I, I enjoyed them. So I'll give them four bottle, uh, glasses of wine. I said bottles of wine. Wow. wow. Four glasses of wine. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It Especially the first, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes or so was pretty interesting, especially when they set up that coat rack and then it just falls over. <laughs> Because you really don't, you're like, what is happening right now? You know, so that was pretty cool, actually. So, yeah, I think I'm going to give it three. I think I'm going to give it three glasses of wine. I did watch it twice. Sometimes I watch things three times. And I was able to pick out something different in it the second time that I watched it. Could probably watch it again and pick out other things. So, and especially because of the time. We know a little bit about the time, but we don't really understand it. But the different aspects all had to come together. The depression, people being afraid of communicable disease at that time, especially more so. I, I you know, I think we might even identify with it more now than yeah. perhaps we would have five years ago pre the pandemic, you know, the defining pandemic in our lifetime. So it definitely held attention be because of that. And you could, I, and I could understand a little bit that they were worried that if there was an outbreak of plague, first of all, not an outbreak of plague, but how people would react to the suggestion right. that there would be, or if it actually did start, how they would handle it because the previous one did not get handled very well at all. So I think they probably had almost no hope of containing it were it to start again. What I don't know about is the bubonic plague. Is that actually something to be concerned about? Because it's my understanding that it killed so many people that the people that it didn't kill have an immunity of sorts and that we're, we are all basically descendants of those people. So it's that specific disease is not necessarily as concerning so kind of maybe they just used it because everybody knows what it is why not the flu why not do or is that too close to the bone at that yeah. time close to the bone <laughs> close to the ear <laughs> close bone. to the ear bone <laughs> anyway all right so our last rating is screams and this is just an overall rating um how much we enjoyed the film overall it does not have to be a average of knives and glasses of wine. It's kind of a wild card. So what do you think, Mike? How many screams are you going to give this movie? So I, I enjoyed the urban legend piece of it, too. So I, I didn't mention that before. But that was the other thing that sort of made this sort of interesting was uh, they tried, I think, a different spin on the urban legend. I don't know. I agree with the spin that, you know, guys 
solution to trying to drive people away from the Clarendon arms and their bubonic plague missing brother-in-law, future brother-in-law, is to shoot at the place. Not what I would assume, but certainly enough of a mystery to get our dynamic duo on the trail. So I, I appreciate that. It, you know, the movie has to go fast. It's an hour and three, so you don't have a lot of time. Things need to move along. So I appreciate a lot of that. And like I said, I enjoyed the the dynamic interplay. And I don't think I've said that to date. Now, we've seen quite a few movies, and a lot of times there's a, a female lead that's great, or there's a romantic lead. This is the first sort of buddy uh, cop kind of comedy uh, that I thought really had, you know, it was interesting. It was entertaining. So I'll, I'll give it three and a half. Uh, I liked it. Yeah, I think I'm going to give it three. Yeah, there were there were entertaining points, but there were also points where it really dragged how they dealt with Enid. She had no agency at all and was just a foil. I don't think the character could have been a man if they tried to make that character a man. I don't think they could have gotten away with what they got away with there. There were plot holes big enough to drive trucks through. And it's funny because Walcott even points them out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but Walcott's too smart for this film, actually. That's part <laughs> of the problem. Maybe he should have wrote the ending. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's no resolution. Enid is going to have this grief and no resolution. She doesn't even... I mean, is she going to go back and sweep up the fireplace and... F- Get what's left of her brother from the hotel. Like that didn't even enter into the conversation that they de- that they deserve to do something for her. And really, why should she agree to this out of some kind of loyalty to Eric? Like truthfully, I don't know. She might be a better woman than me because I I don't I don't <laughs> think I would agree to that mess. I'm mad on behalf of poor Enid. <laughs> poor Enid. Poor Enid. All right, Mike, let's move along to the character that you have created for use in tabletop role-playing games that is based on this film. There was so much that you could have done here that you could have picked out. So I have no idea what you did, but you're going to tell me. So who is this character? There's a few things to consider. One of them is setting up the same scenario as the film, right? So what that means is... How do you set up a scenario where a person can go missing and you could plausibly cover it up in the same ways that they did in the film? Now, the film stretches disbelief because this is modern era and modern-ish, not as modern for us, but certainly at the time. So there's some detective work, which our Fearless Cornish shows, you know, demonstrably between the bone identification, the, the binoculars. He really sort of applies modern thinking. So in a fantasy setting, a sort of D&D role-playing game setting, um, this is much more plausible, actually. Uh, But there is also a counter. So you get into this interesting dance of what does it take to cover up a body uh, magically, and what would it take to sort of uncover that cover-up? So that starts to create a very specific, and of course Dungeons and Dragons is a, is a, is a mesh of rule sets. So you have to sort of look at different spells and different ways you could do that. So there's a, there's a couple different, this took a, this was probably one of the most challenging concepts because I wanted to get it right, which was if you had a spellcaster who had the ability to cover things up, what would those skills need? What would spells would he need? And it starts with, you know, obviously the ability to sort of get rid of the body, right? So there's a few ways you can do that. You could animate it. And that's frankly really easy, sort of, you know, dress it up, disguise it, have it walk out. Or you could destroy it like they do in the film. And, of course, there are consequences to both. You also want to change the environment when you're done. Um, so that's a whole thing, right? So that could be illusions. That could be physically changing the room. Um, and then you, uh, you, you want to make it look, um, want, you know, changing the environment and then, frankly, uh, convincing everybody that they didn't see what you, they thought they saw. That's the, that's the attempts to drive people uh, mad essentially, and that's a, another set of skills. So there is a way to do it. I, I think I think I've hit on it. I, people I'll be curious what other folks think, but um, that's what we came up with. So uh, Adolf Klein, just because his name is Adolf, it sort of makes him a villain. But that's the guy's name who runs the mortuary. Um, so he was the obvious villain, and he's sort of a necromancer slash enchanter. 
And uh, I thought he would be a great villain with his network of cronies who are, of course, all in on it, right? So there's other groups who will help him, but he's got his mortuary across from Clarendon Arms, which is the, the hotel. There's one other thing, though, right, which is... Most times, most characters, you're not going to have this where somebody says, I have a character who's got, he's not feeling well. He needs to stay at this hotel for a month. That's just not typical. So I gave it a little twist. And the twist was, what if, because Adolf is not a particularly good person, he's done weird things with people's dead bodies for a long time. So he gets cursed. And the curse is rats keep showing up at the Clarendon Arms, no matter what he does to clean it out. So uh, Clarendon Arms has a rat problem, which are infected rats, and they are mad. He doesn't know this, but they're magical. They're going to keep, no matter what he does, he keeps trying to get rid of them. So he's using, there's sort of this secret battle going on behind the scenes to make Clarendon Arms appear successful and clean, and there's this rat infestation that he's battling. So it's a really, uh, into, can you imagine, right? So you're just, you're a group of PCs staying at some inn, and this ridiculous sort of scenario is boiling in the background and the odds of any of it spilling over into a character is actually pretty high. Uh, The easiest is that you see a rat, um, but it could well be a corpse (laughs) stumbling out of a room. And then, and then that kicks off all the other stuff. Then, then you become the Cornish character with an attempt to investigate. So I love the idea. That's partially why I was so excited about this film because it is such a challenge uh, to do it right. I don't know that, you know, some of this game masters have to do, but we try and give them all the right ingredients. Yeah, because necromancers, they're not generally accepted in polite society, right? Like, right. I think a lot of times, even if you don't know that they're a necromancer or even know what necromancy is, when you meet a necromancer, you kind of feel like ick. You know, like this is not a person that you want to be around. So I imagine, first of all, Adolf doesn't have a lot of people around him except for his reanimated corpses, whomever they are. But I do imagine also that a lot of people probably seem to die around him or go missing or that people say, my my friend, my sister, my cousin, whomever died I, I or I don't know what happened or maybe I did. But then one day I thought I saw them again and then realized it couldn't have been them because it was a person that looked disheveled, maybe unhoused, and it turns out, it probably was that person, and, and it, it was their corpse, actually. So I imagine that this is all swirling around and causing problems for Adolf. So how does he stay where he is and and keep practicing his art without people coming down on him with fire and pitchforks? Yeah, so, he, I mean, his mortuary is across the street. He's got a secret tunnel. It's got a blocked up uh, wall. He has a spell called Pass Wall, and he opens it up. So there's literally, in some cases, there's no way to prove it normally. So, like, if you tried to go over across the street, it's all the way across the street. And he's got this tunnel, so he walks uh, corpses through there if he needs to. Um, and then he sort of secretly does it. But he has other abilities, too. He has an ability to completely disintegrate a corpse, but it leaves behind some bone fragments. Um, he has the ability to rearrange a room. But it leaves enough to so that it's sort of an illusion. It looks kind of shoddy. You can investigate and see. Because we, do, we don't want to make this perfect, right? The idea is he should get caught, but not easy. You don't want to make it too easy. Uh, he does have sp- spells that are meant to drive people, either modify their memory or essentially convince them because he charms them to go along with them. So he's not, I, calling him a necromancer alone is a disservice. He's a wizard with necromancy and enchantment spells and transmutation spells. So he's got the full range of spells, but all of them are in service to covering this up. And, you know, he had a, he thought he had a good thing going. He obviously wanted corpses from the hotel. He thought it was going to be, every once in a while, somebody who, as you said, an unhoused person comes in, uh, they just need something, they just ask for food, and then he goes, perfect, that's a person I can take, no one will miss them. But now that curse has started to kick in, and now it's happening to guests as well. So he's starting, it's accelerating, right? You know, this, this is not, this is not tenable for long term. So eventually this is going to, he's going to be found out one way or the other, but the idea is that the characters, the PC stumble into it uh, while it's ongoing. Right. So he's really on a treadmill hill. He's, yeah. he's pretty busy person trying to keep one step ahead of everybody who is, has him sort of probably half figured out in the process, including the townspeople, but who also probably feel 
afraid of him and powerless to do something about it That's until right. some some uh, murder hobos show up in town and decide <laughs> to figure it out. So tell me, though, what are his stats? Because he does sound like a fairly powerful foe. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's, um, let's see, what did I, he is a uh, 12th level. Not th- not as high as you think. 12th level, you can do it all. He has the spells he needs. That's Create Undead, Move Earth, some of the other stuff at a 6th level spell casting. But he's 12th level, and um, he is very smart, right? That's his, probably his big attribute. He's charismatic enough to get away with it. He sort of can cover, um, but he's not very wise, because, look, he, <laughs> if you were wise, you wouldn't get into half these things. So he's he's tricky, and he does have comrades. He has people who help run the hotel. He's essentially uh, financially influential. So in a lot of ways, he's been successful up to this point, and he's got people who are in it, for better or worse, who are supporting him. So they sort of cover for him on the, the normal human side when they're dealing with the public, and he's doing all this nefarious going on in the background. But his, he's got enough skills to pull this off. Where it really gets sticky is when he gets uncovered, right? Then, then you really see sort of his abilities and his sort of his full resources. So uh, he could, you know, if he gets the chance and he has to, he can really bring the pain because he is a 12th level character who's, you know, by the way, specializes in eliminating bodies, which if you happen to be alive when he does that, that's your problem. Well, I could imagine also, I'm presuming that you would place this character really in a city that he might not do well in a rural area. And in a city, you might also have a crime syndicate who might have a need to get rid of some bodies. Absolutely. He is definitely a great cleaner. <laughs> He's a cleaner. Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Mike. So where can people find this character and the characters that are associated with all of our episodes of 50 Date Night Screams? So you can find Mr. Klein and his compatriots at patreon.com slash Talion, T-A-L-I-E-N, where we release each one of these characters one a week for free to the public. Uh, actually, what we've been doing is giving a three-day preview to our patrons, and then it gets shared to the public three days later. So actually, our patrons get them first. Uh, but all they get access to all this. So if you're a, a, pa- a patron of mine, uh, you have access to the full supplement, which is 5e Foes Gothic Villains, where all 50 of them are in there. And it's funny that you hit on this. Um, he is part of a crime syndicate. So we have – there's stuff you can't get in the, the thing we're releasing for free where you sort of see him as part of an ecosystem, right? So he's definitely a mid-tier – uh, villain who is a cleaner. He, you know, he's the person you send people to when you need to get rid of them. So he's a he does have a, a lot of uh, more details, but you'll get all that from that uh, for free that we share on Patreon. And then, as I mentioned, Five E Foes Gothic Villains that's available on Drive Through RPG now. We have that in the the show notes as well, and uh, it is also that's something that our patrons get. So if you are a patron of our tier three, I think, tier three, tier four, you get access to that as well. So he's both on the internet for free as well as in the collection. All right, perfect. And all of this information is in the show notes. The links are in the show notes. The social media where everything gets explained a little bit better and promoted and where you can find things is all where? In the show notes. Or you can go to patreon.com slash Italian and learn how to become a patron, get all of this that we are explaining, some of it for free, some of it is small monetary <laughs> cost, but you get you actually do really truthfully get a lot out of it because the, the Patreon has been live for so long that there is a lot of information there if you do decide to become a patron. And there's always more products coming out all of the time. So check the show notes for all of that or follow on social media to get more information. All right, Mike, I think that pretty much does it for the midnight warning. Yeah, yeah. And uh, my only piece of advice is never trust a hotel. I just... You know, it's funny when you broke it down, you're like, I don't know, you go into this building and it's owned by people that you don't know and they're strangers and you're just trusting them. You're sleeping there. And I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, oh, God, you're right. That's totally true. I mean, it's funny because when we talk about like the gig economy and stuff like that, and people say, 
oh, well, uh, you know, you're going to call uh, a rideshare service and you're just going to get into a car with this person who's a stranger. And I'm like, but I don't really see the difference between that and hailing a cab that I don't know that person either. Like, what's the difference? You know, yeah. I don't know. But society does run on a certain amount of trusting one another and trusting strangers will do the right thing, hopefully, because they don't want to go to jail. But in this movie, nobody goes to jail. So, all right, that'll do it for episode 26, The Midnight Warning from 1932. As always, thanks, Mike for <laughs> sticking through this film and for rolling up the character that is associated with it. Thanks, everybody. Take care. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to 50 Date Night Screams. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can watch this movie for free. The quality isn't always the best when streaming, so we've also included a link to where you can purchase it. You can also get much more information, including the characters from this and all the 50 Date Night Screams episodes at betrayon.com slash Italian. Until next time, don't stop screaming. 50 Date Night Screams is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by Amber and Mike Tresca. Microphone in front of me. The fuck? I'm like, something is wrong. Yeah, maybe if I have the microphone in front of me. Hello. Oh, now I can hear you much better. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Maybe we should have our microphone in front of us if we want to. Want to podcast today? Podcast today. <laughs>